1: Welcome back to The Lead on a day of damning evidence about events inside the Trump White House in the lead up to January 6th. And on that day, we're getting new reaction to the stunning testimony in today's hearing, including what we heard from former White House counsel Pat Cipollone. Let's go to CNN's Caitlin Collins, who's working her sources in Trump world, even as she travels with President Biden on the other side of the planet. Caitlin, uh, what are you hearing about former President Trump's reaction to Cipollone's testimony that we heard excerpts of today?
2: Well, Jake, the former president certainly had some trepidation when it was made clear that Cipolloni was going to go in and testify. And you know, he didn't come out and do it publicly in the way that Cassidy Hutchinson did. But really, it's just as effective because there are these clips of Pat Cipollone's testimony. He was present for several of the key meetings. You know, we had seen some rebuttals of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony by saying she was quoting secondhand information or things that she had overheard. Pat Cipollone was actually in a lot of these meetings, and so he was there able to help flesh out some of the moments to talk about that insane meeting that happened in mid-December at the White House and whatnot. But also, Jake, there were some moments where he went out of his way, it seemed, almost to needle former President Trump when it came to how his reaction is going to be watching these clips. It was a moment where Pat Cipollone was talking about the role that Vice President Mike Pence played that day by not doing what Trump had suggested he do. And unprompted, Cipollone stopped the part of his testimony, part of his interview and said he wanted to say something about pence and this is what he said jake
3: i thought that the vice president did not have the authority to do what was being suggested under a proper reading of the law i conveyed that okay i think i actually told somebody you know in the vice president's just blame me i think the vice president did the right thing i think he did the courageous thing i think he did a great service to this country And I think I I suggested to somebody that he should be given the Presidential Medal for his actions.
2: It was a notable moment, Jake, where Pat went out of his way to heap praise on Pence and what he did that day. And while some may dispute whether or not Pence deserves the Presidential Medal of Freedom for simply not doing something that he was not constitutionally able to do, I do think that's a moment where Trump has been looking at some of these clips of people that he spent so much time with. Ivanka Trump is one of them, and they have been enraging him. Moments where she talked about believing Bill Barr when he said there was no widespread election fraud. It's hard to see, Jake, how this is not going to be one of those Moment of Cipollone, someone who was in key meetings with Trump, heaping praise unprompted on Pence, saying that he believed he deserved the Presidential Medal of Freedom.
1: Yeah, that's going to bother the former president. And so much about all of this is about the feelings of Donald Trump. Joining us now to discuss Trump's former National Security Advisor, Ambassador John Bolton. Thanks so much for being here. Um, So Pat Cipollone became White House Counsel in 2018 when you were still working as National Security Advisor. Um, What did you make of the excerpts we heard of his testimony today?
4: Well, I thought it was very revealing of what he was telling uh, Donald Trump and quite accurately on uh, matters of the Constitution and law. Uh, I certainly had some disagreements with Pat in the effort to suppress my book. But I want to say on this occasion, and on many others, but on this one in particular, he stood tall, he did the right thing, he told the president his best legal judgment— Uh, and uh, we should give him a a round of applause for his steadfastness.
1: If not a Presidential Medal of Freedom. Why not? Good idea. (laughs) I I guess we're just handing him out now. Um, I do want to ask, it does seem as though the president, and this is not a new phenomenon, but the president would go to experts, even people who are loyal to him, like Pat Cipollone. If you're the White House counsel in November 2020, you have been loyal to Donald Trump. Uh, Get advice not listen to the advice, not heed the advice, and keep shopping around until you end up with this group of misfits, with, uh, like Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell, um, is he just not capable of, of hearing no? Well, when it comes to his personal
4: advantage, the answer is he doesn't listen to anybody else. But I think this, it's also important to understand, while nothing Donald Trump did after the election Uh, in connection with the the lie about the election fraud. None of it is defensible. None of it is defensible. Uh, It's also a mistake, as some people have said, including on the committee, the commentators, that somehow this was a carefully planned coup d'etat aimed at the Constitution. That's not the way Donald Trump does things. It's rambling from one half-vast idea to another, one plan that falls through and another comes up. That, that's what he was doing. As I say, none of it defensible. But you have to understand the nature of what the problem of Donald Trump is. He's, to use a Star Wars metaphor, a disturbance in the force. And it's not an attack on our democracy. It's Donald Trump looking out for Donald Trump. It's a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence.
1: I don't know that I agree with you, to be, to be uh, fair, with all due respect. Uh, one doesn't have to be brilliant, to attempt a coup? Uh,
4: I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, not here, but, you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. It was just stumbling around from one idea to another. Ultimately, he did unleash the rioters at the Capitol. As to that, there's no doubt. But not overthrow the Constitution to buy more time to throw the matter back to the states to try and redo the issue. And if you don't believe that, you're going to overreact. And I think that's a real risk for the committee, which has done a lot of good work, mostly when the witnesses testify, not when the members are opining. Uh, it is invariably the case that when you go too far trying to prove your case, you undermine it. And I think you've got to give credit to the intelligence of the American people to listen to the witnesses and let them come to the conclusion. And I think the uh, fellow who had actually gone into the Capitol who said today that he had blinders on and he was too loyal to one person. That is the central point.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's something, and it was, it, as uh, I think uh, Laura Coates said or somebody said earlier, an offering <clears throat> for a lot of Trump supporters and a lot of people who maybe were inclined to believe the lie that they were being fed not only by Trump but others in, in other parts of the uh, media and political ecosystem. Let's talk about the testimony today. Cipollone testified, uh, testified that Trump's allies failed to put up the evidence. He kept on saying, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? Which, of course, they never could do. Not in a court of law, after court of law, after court of law, not, not before election boards. He called out Sidney Powell specifically, denouncing her plan to seize state voting machines. I think Michael Flynn was on board with that, too. Bill Barr evidently agreed. So take a listen.
5: My recollection is the president said something like uh, well, we could get to the bottom, you know, some people say we could get to the bottom of this if if the department sees the machines. It was a typical way of raising a point. And I said, absolutely not. There's no probable cause and I'm not going to seize any machines. And that was that. This idea,
1: which Pat Cipollone said, you're not going to do that. That's crazy. There's no legal way to do that, et cetera. Um, why do you think Trump embrace this idea, which wouldn't have proven anything.
4: Well, I think he was grasping at straws. I think when when he tried one idea and that didn't fly, he went to another. This is the way Trump makes decisions. It's not from A to B to C. Uh, it's, as I've said, it's an archipelago of dots unrelated to one another. You can try and draw, try and draw lines through them, but he can't even draw a line through it.
1: Um, Brad Parscale, who worked for the Trump campaign, he texted Katrina Pearson, who also worked for the Trump campaign. On January 6th, we saw these text message today um, in which Parscale says, uh, describes Trump as a sitting president asking for civil war uh, and then directly blames Trump's rhetoric for the death of Ashley Babbitt, the Trump supporter who was killed by a Capitol police officer as she tried to break into uh, the 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 House chambers. Um, so then the question becomes, Brad Parscale has since met with Donald Trump uh, at Mar-a-Lago. Can you explain as somebody who was... Uh, not a cult member, but somebody who was in with this group of Trump insiders, why so many people who seem to be horrified and shocked by Trump's behavior have a tough time leaving the circle. It beats me, honestly. I
4: don't, I don't know why the phenomenon exists, but it's certainly uh, very strong. And, uh, and this, is, this is another example of it. But you see it in members of Congress who on January the 6th or the day after said, this is it, I've had my ride and they're, they're right back on to Mar-a-Lago. It's a big mistake. It's a big mistake for the Republican Party. We are not the party of a man on a white horse. We are a party of conservative philosophy. And if we get back to that, and I think we will, we're gonna overcome the problem. And this is another place, I wanna be clear here. I think the committee, some of the members of the committee are going too far. Congressman Raskin at the end of the hearing today talked about the Republican Party having a problem of authoritarianism. That is flatly wrong, not to mention insulting, but flatly wrong. Uh, and he, what he's trying to do is use Trump, about whom, I'll just say it again, I have nothing good to say, he's trying to use Donald Trump to anathematize the rest of the Republican Party, and that's unacceptable.
1: I, I do want to ask a follow-up. Um, when we were talking about what is capable what you need to do to be able to plan a coup, and you cited you your expertise having planned coups. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but... Uh,
4: successful coups? Well, I wrote about Venezuela in, uh, in the book, and uh, it, it turned out not to be successful. Not that we had all that much to do with it, but I saw what it took for an opposition to try and overturn an illegally elected president, and they failed. The notion that Donald Trump was half as competent as the Venezuelan opposition is laughable.
1: But I think there's another. I feel like you're this other stuff you're not telling me though.
4: I think I'm sure there is. I think there's another point here that that came out in the testimony that's not been stressed enough. Uh, testimony, a, a deposition, testimony by I think his name was Donnell Harvin. I, I may have taken that down wrong. The the chief of uh, intelligence and Homeland Security for the District of Columbia government, who said we were watching Twitter after Trump's tweet calling for the demonstration on right. January the sixth. We saw all of these implications, all of the concerns about the violence. I want to know where the rest of the government was. And I particularly want to know where members of Congress were. If this was so evident at the time, why there wasn't more security on the Hill long before the, the demonstrators
1: ever turned up? No, it's a good question. Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people who just lived here and had been paying attention— we're aware that there was a real potential for violence yeah, on I that hope day. The, I hope the committee gets into that. I, That's important. I agree. Uh, John Bolton, thank you so much. Coming up, I'm going to talk with Congressman Jamie Raskin, whom uh, the ambassador just had some observations about, about uh, today's hearing. I'm going to get his take on how it went. Plus, after Raskin said Watergate was the Watergate break-in was a Cub Scout meeting compared to the events on and around January 6th, Watergate star witness John Dean will weigh in. We'll see if he agrees as our special special coverage continues. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Lead in our special coverage of today's January 6th committee hearing. The committee revealing new details about an explosive White House meeting weeks after the election that turned into a chaotic, epithet-filled shouting match over seizing voting machines and appointing a conspiracy theorist as special counsel. We're joined now by two former members of the Trump White House, Stephanie Grisham, who served as White House press secretary, and Olivia Troy, who was a top advisor to Vice President Pence, thanks uh, both of you for being with us again. Uh, Stephanie, let me start with you, because one, one of the stunning parts of the testimony was about that, I think it was December 19th meeting, uh, about, you know, where you had all these conspiracy theorists and you know the guy from Overstocked and Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell and Rudy, all of them coming up with these crazy theories, and the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, uh, and others trying to push back on these deranged schemes. Uh, let, let's run uh, some of what Pat Cipollone had to say. I opened the door. And I walked in,
3: I saw General Flynn, I saw Sidney Powell sitting there. I was not happy to see the people were in the Oval Office, what? the Overstock person. I, I've never met never, never who this guy was. Actually, the first thing I did, I walked in, I looked at him, and I said, who are you? And he told me. I don't think, I don't think any of these people were providing the president with good advice. Uh, and... So I I, I didn't understand how they had gotten
1: in. One sense is that if you got a beer in Pat Cipollone, he might be a little bit more descriptive (laughs) about what he thought about these individuals about other than they weren't going to be providing the president with good advice. But let me ask you, how do these people get into the White House?
6: Uh, They contact people, anybody that will sneak them in, wave them in. It's not that hard. And also the president would demand that they would come in. And and when the president tells you, I want somebody to come in, you have to get them in because he will keep asking, where are they? It's interesting because with with that particular uh, video, I was taken back to impeachment number one. And we had almost the exact same scenario happen in the, the dining room off the Oval. Jenna Ellis wanted to be appointed special counsel and the president was going to do it. And we had to get Pat in there. And again, Pat was like, this is not a good idea. I don't feel that she's giving you great advice. And it turned into a melee. And there was yelling. And Pat stood his ground to his credit. And he said, I I will leave here if you do this. So it brought back such a memory of that situation. It rang very, very true to me. It was one of many crazy meetings that happened.
1: One other thing, an interesting decision that the committee went with today had to do with testimony that Ivanka Trump gave uh, that was immediately in the video cutting contradicted by Ivanka Trump's chief of staff, having, having to do with whether or not Ivanka was trying to calm Donald Trump down, I think, on the day of January 6th. Let's roll that.
7: It's been reported that you ultimately decided to attend the rally because you hoped that you would calm the president and keep the event on an even keel. Is that accurate?
2: No, I, I don't know who said that or where that came from.
8: She could tell based on the conversations and what was going on in the office that he was angry and upset and people were providing misinformation.
6: And she felt like she might be able to help calm this situation down.
1: I mean, they seem to be suggesting uh, that Ivanka Trump wasn't telling the truth.
0: Yeah, I found that really interesting because I don't know why she would be sort of embarrassed of that other than she's probably scared of her father, like many of these people, uh, because she's been known to be the person where people would send in when you wanted to talk him off the ledge or when you wanted to advise him that what he was doing was wrong. She was one of the people that was relied upon. I'm sure Stephanie can attest to that. And so I think it's interesting. So I guarantee her chief of staff is telling the truth because they probably were saying, okay, if anyone... Ivanka, can you go in and at least, you know, tell him to do something?
1: And and in fact, Stephanie, uh, when Cassidy Hutchinson testified a couple weeks ago, um, you posted on Twitter a screenshot of of a text that you wrote to First Lady Ivanka Trump on January 6th. Uh, Do you want to tweet that peaceful protests are the right of every American, but there is no place for lawlessness and violence, to which the First Lady wrote back? No.
6: Correct. So, I mean, as Olivia was saying, as we were talking about with Ivanka, a lot of times that's what we would do is go to family members. I would always go to Mrs. Trump. That is why I worked with her for so long. I really thought that we could make an impact in that regard. And so uh, the day that she said no to me was... It broke my heart knowing her like I did. She had often been the voice of reason. Uh, She was upstairs. She was in the middle of a photo shoot for a rug. And, you know, the tweet's not political. It literally just says there's no room for violence. It's not saying anything else. Um, So she said no. I do want to say about today's testimony that Stephen Ayers really, he really brought down the power, not brought down, but lifted up, actually, Mm -hmm. the power of Trump's Twitter account. And it made me think of... The president knew what kind of power he has. I can't tell you how many times he would say, get ready, kids. Let's watch this. Let's watch this. Every network's going to put this up. He loved to watch when he would tweet something. Same thing. He would say, let's watch this. The stock market's going to go up. And we would sit in front of TVs and watch the power of his tweets. And so I think that's really, really important to think about when you think of what Stephen Ayers said. He knew the power he had. And he did get people to come here.
1: That's interesting. The, and the testimony from the unnamed Twitter executive about how they talked about how Donald Trump was planning this violent event uh, weeks ahead of time. If he had not been the president, they would have banned him from Twitter long before. You said that was resonant with you, that, that, that
0: Yeah, back I, some
1: feelings. Yeah,
0: I was, I was thinking about that because, like, I handled Homeland Security for Vice President Pence. So I have seen hit the rhetoric and how it gets picked up by some of these extremist groups. I've seen it in terms of mass shootings in the past related to the Pittsburgh synagogue where they post on Gab, where they repeat some of the lines that the president has said. I saw it in the El Paso shooting where my aunt was in the Walmart during the shooting. Thankfully, she was okay. But all of that rhetoric actually gets picked up. And hearing the Twitter employee talk about sort of the concern there, I had those same concerns leading up to January 6th for myself and my family knowing that this was going to galvanize a lot of people to descend upon Washington, D.C. in a very dangerous way. And I had to figure out the security for me and my family. And very honestly, I was concerned for my former boss. I was watching was all President of this. Vice President Pence. Absolutely. I was concerned about Mike Pence's life and his family and the staff that were going to be there that day because I knew that it was going to be violent.
1: So one of the things that I was wondering about is because, um, look, Caesar Sayoc uh, was a Trump superfan. Uh, who was arrested and I believe is in prison, Uh, he sent pipe bombs to CNN, to uh, Barack Obama, to a bunch of other people. Um, You went in and told Vice President Pence about this, right? Tell me about that experience. Because the idea of Trump causing violence did not happen, it did not start on January 6th.
0: No, it's been a pattern of behavior. And this is something that I think the national security community has wrestled with. And look, I was his advisor at the time. I have to tell you that the White House culture, it is one of fear, and you got to be careful and you tread carefully with how you're going to brief things. I remember that day very clearly when I had found out and it's been briefed um, that it was a MAGA supporter, that he was extremely loyal to Trump, that they had found a lot of MAGA supporting gear, that he had attended the rallies. And I went in to brief the chief of staff to the vice president and Mike Pence himself to talk about this. And I was told by a superior to be careful because I was you know, walking a fine line here because it was a Trump supporter sending this off. And I was like, well, the fact of the matter is, he, this person put many people's lives in danger, media in danger, political figures in danger, and this is not okay.
1: And, and they don't care because if they're supporters, they're supporters, even if they're, they're going to cause violence.
0: Absolutely. If, if, it's the, if
6: you will support him uh, publicly, loudly, in any capacity, he's, it's a supporter, and that's why he will not denounce them. Uh, today was tough. Today was really tough to watch. It brought up a lot of feelings of anxiety.
1: Yeah. I'll bet. Coming up next, a slew of shocking developments from today's hearing, including what Donald Trump's former campaign manager thought in real time about the riot. In fact, that Trump's rhetoric had, quote, killed someone. Stay with us. And welcome back to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. The January 6th committee presenting a number of shocking new details today, including evidence that Trump allies Michael Flynn and Roger Stone work with far-right extrema militia group leaders ahead of the Capitol riot. The committee also playing new video of the testimony of then-White House counsel Pat Cipollone and Ivanka Trump about whether they believe Trump should concede the election, despite his insistence, falsely, that he actually won.
9: Did you, in your mind,
7: form a belief that the president should concede the election loss uh, at a certain point after the election?
3: Well, again, uh, I was the White House counsel. Some of those decisions are political, so to the extent that... But but if your question is, did I believe he should concede the election at a point in time? Yes, I did. I, I believe... Um, Leader McConnell went on to the floor of the Senate, I believe, in mid-December and basically said, you know, the process is done. You know, that, that would be in line with my thinking on these things.
7: December 14th was the day on which the Electoral College met. It was obviously a, a public proceeding or, or a series of proceedings that President Biden had obtained the requisite number of electors. Was that an important day for you? Did that affect sort of your, your planning or your realization as to whether or not there was going to be an end of of this administration.
2: I think so. I think it was my my sentiment, probably prior as well.
1: Let's go to CNN's Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. And Ryan, you just caught up with the chairman of the committee, Congressman Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi, talking about possible future witnesses, including Mike Pence.
9: Yeah, you know, Jake, I think more than anything, what our conversation with Chairman Thomas showed is that this investigation is far from over and that they've not ruled out talking to some of these key witnesses that have been at the center of their investigation. We've known from early January that the committee was very interested in talking to the former Vice President Mike Pence. They've never formally offered him the opportunity to come in, but they've said if he wanted to come in voluntarily, they'd welcome him. Since that time, they've obviously talked to a number of key members of his orbit, his chief of staff, uh, uh, Mark short. uh, Greg Jacob is chief counsel. We've seen videotape of their deposition. But Chairman Thompson said after today's hearing that they would still welcome Mike Pence to come and speak before the committee. And the committee is still actively talking about ways to elicit his testimony. And the other thing he talked about was the possibility of Ginny Thomas still being a witness in front of this committee. Obviously, the committee has in their possession a number uh, of different forms of communication between Thomas and people like Mark Meadows and John Eastman, the conservative lawyer. She was obviously active uh, in her efforts to try and help with the overturning of the election. Uh, now, some committee members I've talked to are skeptical as to whether or not she was playing a really influential role in all of this, but still, the committee is interested in the role that she was playing. So, at this point, they're still open to talking to people, even though it does appear that their investigation is heading toward the finish. We know for sure, Jake, they have a big witness coming in this week, and that's Patrick Byrne, who is, of course, the Overstock CEO, who was a part of that explosive meeting that was detailed in great specificity during today's hearing. So more than anything, the investigation continues.
1: Jake. All right, Ryan, thank you so much. Today's testimony concluded with a mystery. Which potential committee witness did Donald Trump just try to call this week? CNN's Caitlin Collins has been working her sources. And Caitlin, a lot of people in the media, a lot of people in Trump world trying to figure out who vice chair Liz Cheney was talking about when she noted uh, alleged attempted witness tampering, Donald Trump reaching out to a a witness who did not take the call.
2: Yeah, Jake, it raises a lot of questions, a lot of them that we still don't have answered. But it has asked, sent a lot of people in Trump's orbit asking who this could potentially be. Obviously, that's a huge question for them uh, about which witness this could be. She did try to narrow it down by saying it's not someone that we've seen from publicly. So we know it's not someone, for example, like Pat Cipollone, who we saw his testimony used today. It's known that he's a witness. Uh, it's not likely someone like Sarah Matthews, who is a deputy to Kaylee McEnany because of Of course, they've used clips of her testifying. The same with Cassidy Hutchinson and these other witnesses. Liz Cheney specified it was someone that has not appeared publicly. So that raises questions. But... Jake, I think it's still some big questions about whether or not it's someone that Trump knew is a witness in this investigation. That's going to be something that likely the Justice Department wants to know, given they've turned over this information to them. And, of course, what was the intent of that phone call that he placed to them? And so, Jake, I think one thing you have to keep in mind here is the context of this, because, of course, Trump is someone who has had questions about witness tampering before. Remember when Michael Cohen, his former attorney, had the FBI raid his home, his office, a hotel he he was staying in at the time? Trump had tweeted saying he did not believe that Michael Cohen would flip on him in that situation. You later saw Michael Cohen testifying about what he believed were intimidation tactics that were being used by Trump in his orbit. You've seen this with other people, Paul Manafort, others, raising these questions about whether or not he is trying to interfere. Of course, Liz Cheney just raised a bunch of questions with that teaser there at the end, Jake.
1: All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. A powerful takeaway From the January 6th Select Committee, Uh, joining us now, uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin uh, calling American carnage, Donald Trump's true legacy as the first president in U.S. history, to call for a crowd to descend on Washington and block the constitutional transfer of power. Uh, And and Congressman Raskin joins me now. I want to start where the committee ended today, which is uh, the vice chair of the committee, Liz Cheney, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, talking about what sounded a lot like witness tampering. Let's roll that clip.
6: After our last hearing... President Trump tried to call a witness in our investigation, a witness you have not yet seen in these hearings. That person declined to answer or respond to President Trump's call and instead alerted their lawyer to the call. Their lawyer alerted us. And this committee has supplied that information to the Department of Justice. Let me say one more time, We will take any effort to influence witness testimony very seriously.
1: So, Congressman Raskin, who was the witness? Is that witness tampering an obstruction of justice?
10: Well, we'd have to know a lot more about it. The point is that the committee takes really seriously the ability of witnesses to come in, like Cassidy Hutchinson, and tell us everything they know without fear of reprisal or coercion and so on. So uh, people who have an interest in what we're doing here should not be calling up witnesses to, to be influencing them. And that's the message that I think the vice chair of the committee wanted to put out there today because there's been a pattern of this happening and we don't accept it. I mean, witness tampering is a crime in the District of Columbia. It's a crime uh, in federal law and it's a form of obstruction of justice. It's a way to try to you know gerrymander the outcome of a legislative hearing or judicial hearing.
1: You told the Justice Department about it. Do you want the Justice Department to investigate not just this, but all the other examples of of alleged uh, witness tampering or obstruction of justice that that you've heard about and that you've presented to the American people?
10: I mean, the main thing is we want it to stop. Uh, I'll leave it to the Department of Justice to decide where to take it from there. Um, But we just can't have this. It's a ridiculous pattern. And we also want it to be clear what the law is on it. You know, we don't want someone coming back later saying, oh, I didn't realize that I couldn't try to influence a witness's testimony. Of course, ignorance of the law is no excuse, whether you're talking about witness tampering, obstruction of justice, or seditious conspiracy. You can't say, oh, I didn't know that law existed, therefore I'm not guilty of committing the crime.
1: I'm not a lawyer, as opposed to you, but let me just ask, there does appear to be a more sophisticated way of controlling these witnesses going on here, which is that Trump world, one way or another, is paying for the attorneys for many of your witnesses. And my understanding is, at least based on some of the uh, messages that uh, Cheney shared, uh, is that Donald Trump is getting the transcripts and reading them. uh, And messages are being conveyed to these individuals who have lawyers funded by Trump world. Isn't that, that's not a crime, obviously, but it's certainly a conflict of interest.
10: Yeah, uh, a number of witnesses have had to leave their original lawyer. Cassidy
1: Hutchinson's an example of one. Cassidy
10: Hutchinson is an important example of one uh, who decided to get a new lawyer and then uh, to come back and to testify. And um, obviously, if there are witnesses out there who believe that their lawyer is working at cross purposes with their obligation to tell the truth, uh, they should work to rectify it, but we know that there are lots of great lawyers out there who are available to represent people.
1: One of the most shocking parts of today's hearing was reading these text messages between two Trump campaign officials, Brad Parscale uh, and Katrina Pearson, uh, written on the day of the insurrection. Uh, Let's roll that clip if we can.
0: Mr. Parscale said, quote, this is about Trump pushing for uncertainty in our country, a sitting president asking for civil war. And then when he said, this week I feel guilty for helping him win, Katrina Pearson responded, you did what you felt right at the time and therefore it was right. Mr. Pascal added, yeah, but a woman is dead. And yeah, if I was Trump and I knew my rhetoric killed someone. When Ms. Pearson replied, it wasn't the rhetoric, Mr. Pascal said, Katrina, yes, it was.
1: Do you agree? Did Donald Trump's rhetoric mm-hmm. result in the deaths? Not only of, I assume that was a reference to Ashley Babbitt, mm-hmm. but, uh, and, uh, and there were other Trump supporters who died that day on the scene, but also uh, Officer Sicknick, uh, the other officers who died by suicide in the following days, whether they had TBI uh, or PTSD or whatever. I mean, do you, do you think Donald Trump's rhetoric is what led to this loss of life?
10: Well, I mean, it's a complicated question because, you know, causation can have a meaning in the legal context and in the moral and political context. And we're not prosecutors, but in the moral and political context, I would say that the language that leaders use is of essential importance in a democracy. And that's why I found the testimony at the end from Mr. Ayers and Mr. Van Tatenhoof so powerful. I mean, Mr. Ayers uh, is a guy who comes forward and he says... I'm a regular American family man, uh, and I followed the word of the president. I trusted him. Trust knew. I mean, Donald Trump knew that it was a lie that he had won the election. He'd been told that by the Attorney General of the United States, who told him it was BS. He was told it by his own campaign people. He was told it by the White House Counsel. But Trump was turning around and telling his followers that he had really won the election. I mean, that's a massive deception and it's a betrayal of people. And it was painful to watch mister Ayers talk about how he believed that lie and what it's done to its to his life. It's turned his whole life and his family upside down. He lost his job because of Donald Trump. You think Donald Trump cares about that? You think Donald Trump cares about Sergeant Connell, who now can't be a cop because of the injuries inflicted on his foot and his shoulder and his hand? You think he cares about Officer Hodges, who basically got tortured in front of the entire world, where Officer Fanon or Officer Dunno, he walks away from it, and he walks away from his own followers, too, uh, many of whom are in jail today because of the rhetoric, the lie that he spread, and the incitement that he caused. So could you prosecute him for this or that? Look, that's for the Department of Justice to say, but in a moral and political sense, Mm -hmm. using common sense, which is what Thomas Paine asked us to do, Would people say that any of this would have happened without Donald Trump? I don't think so.
1: So lastly, I just want to uh, give you an opportunity to respond to criticism uh, from uh, Ambassador John Bolton, uh, Donald Trump's national security advisor, who was here. And he took issue with something you said during the hearing. Let's roll that tape and uh, let you respond.
4: I think the committee, some of the members of the committee are going too far. Congressman Raskin, at the end of the hearing today, talked about the Republican Party having a problem of authoritarianism. That is flatly wrong, Uh, not to mention insulting, but flatly wrong. Uh, And what he's trying to do is use Trump, about whom, I'll just say it again, I have nothing good to say, he's trying to use Donald Trump to anathematize the rest of the Republican Party, and that's
10: unacceptable. Your response? Well, first of all, I'm glad to hear Ambassador Bolton denounce authoritarianism, so that's good news, Uh, but I think he's being a little too clever if he says that Donald Trump is just one guy. He happens to be one guy who is the leading candidate within the Republican Party. And there are now hundreds of uh, people running for office in the Republican Party across the country and running for party office across the country who are still claiming that Donald Trump won the election. So that is on the pathway to authoritarianism. I invoked uh, the the authors of uh, How Democracies uh, Die. Um, And they have said that the hallmarks of authoritarian parties are, one, they deny uh, that they have lost an election. Mm -hmm. They refuse to accept the results of democratic elections if they don't go their way. And two, they embrace political violence or refuse to reject it. So if uh, Ambassador Bolton thinks that those positions are anathema within the Republican Party. Great. I'm afraid they're gaining currency in the Republican Party.
1: Congressman Raskin, thanks so much uh, for being here. And, and Mazel tov on your amazing daughter's engagement. That's, a, that's a, some good news for you during a, a, a tough few years. You're few
10: kind years to say we're very excited about it.
1: Yeah. She looks very happy over there. Thanks so much for being here. Still ahead, officers who were attacked by the mob share their take on today's testimony, including Sergeant Akil Eccolino Ganel, who was recognized during an emotional moment Uh, during today's hearing. Stick around. And welcome back to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Today, the January 6th Select House Committee zeroed in on the connection between members of Trump's orbit and extremist groups who were part of the violent mob at the U.S. Capitol. The hearing also included testimony from a rioter who pleaded guilty to illegally entering the Capitol on January 6th, saying he only went there because Trump directed him to Four officers who were attacked by rioters that horrible day. Join us now after t- attending today's hearing. Uh, a- 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 Aki Gannell you called me, said I should call you Aki. Aki Ganel is a U.S. <laughs> Capitol Police Sergeant and former uh, Army Staff Sergeant. Michael Fanone is a former member of the Metropolitan Police Department here in D.C. and a CNN contributor. Daniel Hodges is a D.C. police officer and Harry Dunn is also a U.S. Capitol police sergeant. So I have so many questions for you four. I watch you guys every time you're at the hearing every day, or every time there's a hearing, and I just wonder what you're thinking. Uh, But Akia, I want to start with you, uh, because uh, Jamie Raskin, Congressman Raskin, had a moment uh, at the end of the hearing uh, that was very emotional for all of us, uh, and and you as well. uh, If we could play that.
10: Sergeant Gunnell, we wish you and your family all the best. We are here for you, We salute you for your valor, your eloquence, and your beautiful commitment to America. I wonder what former President Trump would say to someone like Sergeant Connell, who must now go about remaking his life. I wonder if he could even understand what motivates a patriot like Sergeant Connell.
1: The context of this, obviously, is that doctors just told you that your injuries uh, from January 6th, shoulder and foot injuries, I believe, Uh, are too severe for you to continue being a police officer?
5: Yeah. Uh, One of the things, like, uh, given the severity of my injuries, I'd had two surgeries, one on my foot, one on my left shoulder. And I had gotten to the maximum recovery. Uh, The issues that are remaining remaining are lifelong uh, injuries. I had to learn how to live with them. Uh, Some... Angles or rotation in my shoulder hurt more than others. Uh, so it's an adjustment to my, of, for myself. And one thing that I don't want to do is uh, respond to it and see uh, if there is a call and not being able to help my fellow officer or put myself or their safety in, in danger by not being able to make that split decision uh, action that re- requires me uh, had I not had this the injuries. Do you know what you're uh, going to do next? No, at this point, I, I, I haven't thought out that far yet. I'm still processing the new information. That is there a, a, a,
1: like a desk job or an executive um, job you could
5: take? Currently, I am doing a desk job uh, with the Capitol Police. Uh, it's uh, up to OPN and Department of Labor, uh, how fast they process my uh, application for retirement. Uh, but it, it is recommended both my... Uh, uh, mental health treatment uh, provider, and also the uh, two doctors that I have for my other injury
1: physically. Well, you, you keep in touch with us about this, because we have your back here, uh, you know. And and even if some of the people that you protected that day don't, we do. And we're going to make sure that, that you get the justice and the care you need. Thank you. Um, I want to ask you, Officer Hodges, um, Stephen uh, Ayers, who was charged with— uh, a crime on January 6th and seemed somewhat repentant today uh, during his testimony. He came up to all of you uh, after the hearing. Uh, What did he have to say and what were you feeling when he did this?
11: He uh, he came up to all my colleagues. Um, I was the last one and they were all the bigger men and shook his hand. So um, there was some peer pressure there to be the bigger man. Did you shake his hand? I did. Uh, Well, first, I asked him if he was sorry for what he did. And he said, he answered in the affirmative. And I said, I hope so. And I shook his hand. Because you have to believe that there are people out there who can change. And you have to be willing to forgive those people. Because if you de-incentivize the return to rationality, then this culture war will never end.
1: Yeah, and there does seem to be something going on here, uh, Officer Fanon, where the committee is trying to give an off-ramp for people who believed these lies put forward by Trump and McCarthy and all the others, uh, and allowing them to be portrayed in a way as victims, too. Um, That must be weird to experience, given what you went through that day.
12: No, I mean, I understand it. I was a Trump supporter myself. In 2016, I voted for Donald Trump. Uh, I took the off-ramp a lot sooner than um, than those that uh, that came to the Capitol on January 6th. But I also recognize the fact that um, the vast majority of those that were there, while I certainly wouldn't call them peaceful protesters, uh, they didn't uh, necessarily have the same um, uh, violent... Um, Interactions with law enforcement that uh, that many did have uh, and, you know, that the their I guess, reasoning or rationale behind going to the protest had to do with uh, being lied to by their by their political leaders. Yeah. Um, Not
1: just their political leaders, Harry. Uh,
12: also, um,
1: some in the media. Right. Conservative media, Trump yeah. supporting media. <clears throat> uh, and you still work on Capitol Hill. You still protect people who not only don't back the blue when it comes to you four and, and your colleagues that day, but who, in some
5: cases, smear you and your yeah. colleagues. I'm not going to let anybody take the joy or the reason why I became a police officer. I'm not letting anybody take that away from me. Um, I'm able to hold my head up high and look anybody in the face and go on any network and sit down in any meeting because I know that what I'm doing is right and I know that what I'm speaking is truth. I don't have a reason to hold my head down about anything. So I'm going to continue to do my job that I signed up for because I believe in what I'm doing. So,
1: Yeah, and that includes defending people who are horrible people. Um, one of the things that happened during the, the committee hearing is they made a very clear um, line between Trump's tweet, come to the Capitol uh, on January 6th, we'll be wild, and the response that directly put targets on your back or on your front in some cases. Uh, I wanna roll some of that tape and get your response.
10: Others realized that police would be standing in the way of their effort to overturn the election. So one wrote, I'm ready to die for my beliefs. Are you ready to die, police? Another wrote on the Donald.Win. Cops don't have standing if they're laying on the ground in a pool of their own blood.
5: What was it like to hear that? Terrifying. um, Because just uh, like they were saying that we didn't have standing, we did have standing. And we stood up to the assault uh, to the point of risking my life for it. Uh, Not only myself, but the other officer... Prior of these gentlemen's coming to to our rescue. Uh, before I was down there with with Hodges. I didn't know him at the time, but he was fighting at the west front, uh, the lowest uh, terrace. And then he, when we retreated back to, in, into the t- tunnel, uh, he was like two persons behind, uh, in front of me, and I also was getting trampled. Then later on, like an hour. Later, I see uh, Fanon, he would leave me. At that point, it has been th- almost three hours, two hours fighting. Um, and when he Trump tweeted about my pens, that's when the the whole rioter, of the mob intensified. That's what got worse after that.
1: Yes. Yeah. So you know, he could not only he made it worse, but he could have made it he, better. He, he could, could have just have say he go he,
5: he holds so much influence on th- those people at that time that. He could have just said, you know what, this is my bad. This is not what we had in mind. Don't go in. Stop. But he didn't. What about you? What was your response when you heard that testimony?
12: Uh, Well, I mean, the the two biggest takeaways that I've had from from really all of these hearings has been the fact that violence was uh, the plan all along, Mm -hmm. uh, that President Trump was aware of the fact uh, that there was going to be violence that day, and uh, so was his uh, support apparatus. Uh, that, you know, they had brought these groups, the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters that are violent, anti-government extremist groups, white nationalists, white supremacist groups, whatever the hell you want to call them. Uh, they're not patriotic organizations. These are, you know, uh, militia groups. They were described today by, you know, a former uh, supporter um, that, you know, are looking to uh, promote these types of acts of violence and, and commit these acts of violence like they did on January 6th. The other thing that's, um, you know, my biggest takeaway is how many cowards there were yeah. in the Trump organization. I mean, a witness after witness that has come forward and talked about how, you know, insane the Trump uh, White House was, unhinged, all these words that have been used to describe it. And yet it's 18 months later and we're finally hearing from these people. Yeah. Like, where was your courage to just say, this is crazy, I'm out of here, uh, and what, you're, you're going to lose a job? Well, I lost my job. Uh, I, you know, suffered some pretty significant injuries on January 6th, and I was willing to come forward and talk about my experience immediately. Yeah. Um, and it's Damn here. sickening. Well, thank you, all four of you, as
1: always. Great to see all of you, and thank you for what you did that day, and thank you for what you continue to do. Um, Really appreciate it. Coming up, more on today's shocking revelations from the January 6th committee hearing. Plus, we have some breaking news out of Texas. Never-before-seen video of the hallway outside the Uvalde classroom. That's coming up on The Lead. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and we continue with today's stunning January 6th committee hearing. If you have not been watching, CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill with a recap now of the day's big hearing, including a breakdown of the shocking testimony about a meeting inside the White House on December 18th,
3: 2020. I was not happy to see the people were in the Oval Office.
11: Four days after all 50 states certified the electoral results, Donald Trump convened a tense meeting in the White House where several top aides engaged in a screaming match over the effort to install him into a second term in office.
3: I don't think any of these people were providing the president with good advice.
11: Former White House counsel Pat Cipollone telling the January 6th committee about the December 18th meeting. One of the aides called it unhinged. It involved Trump and election deniers, including Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn, Rudy Giuliani, and Overstock CEO Patrick Byrne.
10: What ensued was a heated And profane clash between this group and President Trump's White House advisors who traded personal insults, accusations of disloyalty to the president, and even challenges to physically fight.
4: What they were proposing,
13: I thought was nuts.
10: I'm going to categorically describe it as,
4: you guys are not tough enough. Or maybe, I put it another way, you're a bunch of pussies. Flynn screamed at me that I was a quitter and everything. He kept on standing up and turning around and screaming at me. And then at a certain point, I had it with him. So I yelled back, "Either rather come over or sit your effing ass back down.
11: And during the six-hour meeting that ended after midnight, Trump even suggested naming Sidney Powell as special counsel even though he was told repeatedly there was no widespread fraud to investigate.
14: The president said, OK, you know, I'm naming her that and I'm giving her a security clearance. And then shortly before we left and it totally blew up. I was being
3: a I didn't think she should be appointed to anything.
11: The meeting resulted in this draft executive order commanding the secretary of defense to seize voting machines. To have the federal
3: government seize voting machines, That's a terrible idea That's not how we do things in the United
11: States. And within hours after the meeting ended at 1.42 a.m., Trump tweeted, big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there, we'll be wild. The committee revealing this led to a rallying cry for right-wing extremist groups to converge on Washington.
5: When the president of the United States announced that he was going to have a rally, then I bought ticket and went.
11: Behind the scenes, Trump's longtime associate Roger Stone was in touch with these groups who provided him security, we will be back in and was included in encrypted chats with the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. Former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn was also in communications with these groups, according to the committee. And three days after the heated White House meeting, a group of House conservatives met at the White House to discuss how to get Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the election results while presiding over a joint session of Congress on January 6th. Cipollone was excluded.
3: My view was that the vice president didn't have a legal authority to do anything except what he did.
11: The committee also presenting evidence that Trump planned days before January 6th to order his supporters to march to the Capitol. After a speech to the rally that day, including a draft tweet that was never posted, and rally organizers who said POTUS is going to just call for it unexpectedly. Stop the Steel organizer Ali Alexander knew of Trump's plan. We're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. Trump even ad-libbed in his speech he'd be joining the rally goers at the Capitol. While he didn't go, his supporters did, and the deadly riot ensued. In the wake of the attack, Trump's former campaign manager Brad Parscale said that Trump's rhetoric may have killed someone. Katrina Pearson responded, it wasn't the rhetoric. Parscale said, Katrina, yes it was. Now, the committee also revealing that there could be also more evidence of potential witness tampering. Liz Cheney, the vice chair of the committee, saying that after the last hearing, Donald Trump tried to call a witness who has not yet been seen. And that person declined to answer the question. They alerted their lawyer. The lawyer alerted the committee. And Cheney's saying that they have told the Justice Department about that. But the committee at this moment, Jake, declining to reveal more details about that call.
1: All right, Monty Raju, thank you so much. Coming up. Breaking news in the investigation of the Uvalde, Texas, school shooting. We're going to get our first look at some of the horrifying hallway surveillance video from inside Robb Elementary School. Stay with us. There's some breaking news in our national lead in the investigation into the Uvalde school shooting, which I believe was seven weeks ago today. For the very first time, we're seeing a portion of the surveillance video from inside the hallway at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde. The video is, frankly, horrifying. It was just published by the Austin American Statesman newspaper. This is a four-minute edited clip. It shows a sliver of the police response. This comes ahead of the Texas House Committee's plan to show the hour-long video to the victim's families and the public on Sunday. Let's bring in CNN's Rosa Flores. Rosa, walk us through what we're going to see here.
14: You know, Jake, before we show you this video, we need to share with our viewers that this is an edited video produced by the Austin American statesman. It is about four minutes long. It does not include the full 77 minutes of the account of what happened. Now, the Austin American statesman decided to edit out the children, the voices of the children that were in this video. And then CNN has decided to edit out the audio of the gunfire. We should be very clear here. This is a very graphic video. It could trigger uh, people watching this in our audience. So you have to be very careful if you decide to watch this video. Now, what you're going to see is you're going to see the gunman enter the school with that rifle. He's going to enter. He's going to make a right, go down the hall. There's a child there who's observing all of this. Then the gunman starts and opens fire. Then you're going to see that hallway eventually fill with police officers, but the video starts off at the beginning when the gunman crashes near the school. difficult to find words following that four minutes we are starting to get word from families the families of the victims who have seen this video they are very upset some of them taking to Facebook uh, saying that this is the opposite of what the family wanted I'm going to quote here our hearts are shattered all over again and Jake, this, is, this video is coming just days before the Texas House Investigative Committee was planning to have a private meeting with the families of the victims, to share with them the full 77 minutes of the hallway video and also a fact-finding report and also answer their questions about the investigation. So that's what the families were preparing themselves for, to have that conversation in private, to be able to express their frustrations, to ask questions. And here we are again, sharing this story of of, of another yet piecemeal account of what happened that day.
1: And Rosa, as you and I have discussed for the last seven weeks, we need to remind our viewers that the very first thing the police and the politicians did after this horrifying massacre was praise themselves and how brave they were and how courageous the response was. That's, that was the first thing. And it's only because the families and journalists were asking questions that we now have an accurate, an accurate picture of what happened. Does the committee plan to release this video, the full 77 minutes earlier, now that the Austin American-Statesman has published this edited version online?
14: You know, I talked to a source close to the committee, and this source tells me that they plan to do what they were planning to do, which is release this video to the families first on Sunday in Uvalde, so in their own town, and to answer their questions. And that's what they continue uh, to do. The chairman of the committee, Representative Justin Burroughs, actually tweeting just moments ago, saying, expressing his disappointment of, of this leak because they were really hoping to take the families through the entire video and not subject them to yet another edited version of reality.
1: All right. So Rosa Flores, thank you so much. Let's discuss with our law enforcement experts and analysts here. Uh, Andrew McCabe, let me start with you. It's, a head, it's a heavily ad- edited. We have to remind people. That's right. The Austin American statesman edited out the sounds of the children. CNN has taken out the sounds of the gunfire. So as horrifying as that was... The actual video is much worse. Yeah. Um, what's your response?
7: It is hard to characterize this as anything other than a complete disaster. It's a total mess from the crisis response uh, perspective. From the very first moments when police officers arrive on the scene, you see two, maybe three go down the hall. The other four stay uh, inexplicably at the end of the hall, high, you know, behind, uh, behind cover. Even the Texas State active shooter response for school-based officers training that every one of these officers has to have had by this point in time makes it clear that you take everybody that you have when you arrive on that scene and you go downrange to address the threat. That is not what they did with the bodies they had. And then the mistakes compound from there. You see one after another as we watch the video. Uh,
1: Commissioner uh, Ramsey, obviously it is a difficult job being a police officer and i don't want to pretend that like any one of us here with the exception of the fbi agent and the police officer uh would run into fire but what's your response when you see that 74 minutes of police not not trying to take out this gunman
13: well i mean i have to be honest when i first saw that i was embarrassed as a police officer i was actually embarrassed to watch that take place um I mean, it is contrary to everything you're trained to do. And granted, it's a dangerous job. I understand that. I've been under fire three times in my career. And so I know it is not a good feeling, believe me. But you do what you have to do. And they did not. I mean, those first officers on the scene were in about three minutes. And only two of them, or three, walked down the hall. Two of them stayed back. I don't know what the heck they called themselves doing, uh, staying back that far. You know, two did meet gunfire. Okay, okay. Uh, but you regroup, and you have to go back. That's right. And you have to do what you have to do, period. That's the job. You've got, yes. That's the job. <clears throat> and, you know, let me remind you, I mean, this is not pro bono work. You get paid to do this, and you volunteered to do it. You didn't get drafted to become a cop. It's part of what you do. And let's remind our viewers, 19 children yeah. and two teachers killed
8: yeah. in this. What was?
1: First of all, I can't even believe there, there was actually a moment there where an officer because was putting on hand
8: sanitizer
9: so he didn't get COVID.
8: I mean, off air, I was swearing because I, I literally could not believe what I was watching. I've seen a lot of uh, bad videos. Uh, and I don't. I, there's a couple of takeaways. And one is where the heck is the command authority? Like I, I'm looking at a lot of guys who look like they're waiting for you know a Nike Direct. store to open. Yeah, like it's like so there's like, are, do we have something better to do? But the second is that's of course the children. You look, we we have a proliferation of a certain kind of weapon that is going to kill children, are going to kill people, but children in these schools very quickly. So your standard of success is can I make things less bad as a law enforcement officer? And what we now know is uh, there were shots in the delayed time, so it wasn't like this was over. And secondly, we don't know who bled out. We don't know if some of those kids would have survived right. had they gotten medical care quicker. And that's the the frustrating thing. I, I, I get it. These weapons are hard, but they, you know we know what to do when the, when this happens. And, Time. And
1: Carrie Cordero, at one point during the video, an officer can be heard uh, saying, quote, they're making entry, but they weren't making entry. Remember, and remember, initially, we were told all these things that were not true about the he was barricaded in, he was locked in, they couldn't get in. It, it's so infuriating because the police... And the politicians in Uvalde have been lying to the parents of these kids for
14: seven weeks. Look, this is clear. There is no excuse. All of us have worked with law enforcement. I've spent my entire professional career working with and around law enforcement officers. There is no excuse for the holding back. When we look at the timeline that's laid out in the video, this should have been over in three to four minutes. They were on the premises, at least half a dozen officers, uh, on the three-minute mark. By four minutes,
8: they were retreating and running away.
14: We don't know what was going on in the minds of those officers who were in the hallway and decided not to act when there were children under gunfire. But from my perspective, every single one depicted in that video should turn in their badge.
1: What more do you want to know, Commissioner Ramsey? What other questions do you have after watching that?
13: I tell you, that video pretty much says it all, to be honest with you. I mean, they're, I mean, they just cowardice. I don't know what you want to call it. Call it whatever you want. But I'm telling you, that should not have happened like that. It shouldn't. I was commissioner of Philly for eight years. I buried eight police officers that were Mm. killed in the line of duty. Five of them within a nine-month period. Three shot to death, two responding to the, yeah, the I mean, priority one calls yeah. I mean I know what heroism looks like and that ain't it yeah. and you just had four people in your, in your studio here that really did demonstrate what policing is all about this is an embarrassment period
7: and let's, let's not forget that there is a leadership <clears throat> angle to this. We don't know what's in the head of those officers, but we do know some things. And when they did finally make entry at one end of the hall, the half a dozen or so standing at the back end of the hall seemed surprised by that. There was no leadership on this scene. Very
1: distressing. Thanks to all of you. I really appreciate it. And I'm Jake Tapper. Thanks so much for watching. Wolf Blitzer picks up our coverage with the Situation Room in Jerusalem for President Biden's visit to the Middle East.
13: Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash me country. Max subscription required.